0: Well, how did the Bible come to be? That's kind of the question that we have been looking at for the past uh, three or four messages. Um, over the past weeks, we have answered that question of how the Bible came to be by looking at two areas, one of revelation and one of inspiration. If you remember, revelation is God giving man knowledge about himself, which we could not or would not otherwise know. We could, we could guess, we could uh, postulate about what God was like, but a revelation is God telling us about himself, who he is, what he has done, what he will do. The second area we've looked at is the area of inspiration, and it's the Greek theonoustros, theo meaning God and neustros meaning breathed. How God breathed into man his revelation, you know, and, and uniquely used their personality, their, their writing styles, all those things to get the exact message and communicate the exact truth that he wanted to have. Some of the scripture we looked at will put this up for us. Uh 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof. For correction, for training in righteousness. All scripture inspired by God. He is the author. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy came not in old times by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In other words, men weren't sitting around saying, you know, we should probably write some prophecies or some holy writings or, or write these things down. And, and they decided to compile you know, these religious writings. Not at all. But it says God moved. God came in old times. It wasn't by the will of man, but it was by the will of God. And so revelation and inspiration, they answer the supernatural question of how did the Bible come to be? How did God get this truth into our hands? But on a very practical level, we might ask the question, how did the Bible end up in the present form that we have it here today? And that's what we're going to look at today, and then we're going to take a break. We're going to you know, focus on Christmas, and then as we get into the new year, we're going to look at one more message concerning the Bible, and we're going to look at basically our Bible. And how did we get it in the present form today? You know, How did we get the order of the books and the different translations we have? We're going to look at the accuracy, how we can know it. it's accurate. The canonicity, in other words, how were these books chosen to be in here? Um, how they were preserved. We're going to be looking at some things about the language. Um, and probably this week and that, that final message in January, we're not going to be using quite as much scripture as we have in the past. We've been loo- using a lot. Uh, but we're going to really see the clear hand of God working to give us the Bible that we have today. And so I want to start this morning, I want to talk about just some practical truths about the Word of God. And some of these things, again, you're going to know already. Some of these things are going to be reminders for you, but it's always good to kind of circle back and remind us of you know, our foundation. Um, let's just talk first about, about the language. The Old Testament is primarily written in Hebrew. You know, that is the Jewish language. There is um, some of it written in Semantic uh, Chaldean language, but it's just a small portion of it. the vast majority of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Hebrew is a much different language than English. Hebrew is a, a tremendously descriptive type of a language, very poetic type of a language. We know that the New Testament, once again, primarily... Is written in Greek um, it too is a lot more descriptive uh, than English is English is very simplistic you know Greek again would would be very uh, picturesque in its writing style um, it is very important for us to keep our English version of the Bible tied very closely to the original Hebrew and the original Greek I mean you've heard that phrase you know, it loses something in translation. Well, that is very true concerning whenever you translate one thing from one language to another because it's not just a word-by-word translation. I mean, just Hebrew in and of itself. um, When we write something, we write from right to left. We read from right to left. Hebrew is the exact opposite. It goes from left to right. And so even the sentence structuring, all of those things... Are different so it's not just a simplistic thing so when we do have some things where some words are different or even in some translations um, seem to appear to choose a different word well a lot of that comes you know just depending on what the translators were, were emphasizing at that time what they got from the text but the the bottom line is it has to go back to the original Hebrew or, or the original Greek and that's why you'll have pastors or some speakers they often refer back you know, to the, in the original language, it says this. It's not to impress people, it's not to make us sound smarter than we really are, but often a word-by-word translation is limited by our English language that we're translated into. A good example of that, um, and, and we talk about this often, um, the English word love, L-O-V-E. In the Greek, there are three primary words for this. For love there's phileo that means brotherly love eros that is the physical love and then there's agape that's god's love that's that 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 highest form of love well the problem with translating from greek to english is every time whether they see the word phileo eros or agape we translate it in english love and we give no indication on which one of those that it's talking about that's why it's so much more descriptive um, you know their language. We we express the differences of love by our tones and by our mannerisms. I mean I might say to somebody, hey I love ya and, and you know that I'm you know talking about Phileo love or you might I look at my wife and I say, Hey yeah, I love you, you know, and you know that you're thinking of the Eros love or or I love you. You know we, we would have those those tones, those mannerisms that might give an indication where You know, the Greek and the Hebrew will go a little bit deeper in the description um, of that word. Um, I do not personally speak or read Hebrew or Greek. Matter of fact, I don't know many pastors that actually do. But like anything, we live in the golden age. They have Hebrew or Greek for dummies, you know. And so it's very easy for us to get in concordances or when we we find something that, you know, is harder to understand, to go back to the original language, look up those words, you know, to a word-by-word comparison. Then we get to do a lot of that when we come into difficult portions of scriptures. And that's important for us to be able to do, to tie it to the original language, um, I'll look up keywords as I study to make sure I have an accuracy of their understanding. Sometimes, you know, it's worth me sharing it with you in the message, um, and and that's what I'll do. Um, for just a second here, I'm going to step into a minefield um, that that maybe others might not step into. Um, th- there's a constant debate that is floating around Christianity as to what translation is the best. In fact, it was interesting in our ABF a little bit, we were talking about things divisive, you know, that we we might have within churches and within Christianity. And one of them that was mentioned was concerning what translation of the Bible you have, whether it's the King James Version or the New King James or the NASB or the NIV or the, uh, you know, New Living Translation. Um, There are some differences in those Bibles. And there's differences in the wordings in their Bibles. Um, you know, as they go by a sentence-by-sentence translation. Um, However, the context and the intent among the major translations, they're almost exactly the same. And when you get to it, it doesn't matter what version of the Bible you're using, the King James, New American Standard, it does not matter what you have. Whenever there is a conflict, the one thing you don't want to say to someone is, well, my Bible says this in the English. You need to say the Greek and the Hebrew say this. We have to go back to the original writings, not the translations. Comparing a translation to a translation is is not going to give you the accuracy. Comparing the translation to the original writings is going to give you um, that accuracy. The bottom line is if there is ever a question between one translation or another, the only way to resolve it is to go back to the original Hebrew or go back to the original Greek. You know, it's not a version-by-version version comparison. Um, as a matter of fact, you want me to tell you what the best translation is to use? You know, I will do that. I'll tell you what the best translation to use. It's the one that you're willing to read and obey. That's the best one. I don't care what kind of Bible you have. I don't care if it's genuine leather, if it has the the gold inlay of the, the pages, and, you know, it has the red letter edition, it has maps and charts, folks... If you ain't reading it, it doesn't matter which version it is. I mean, God's Word is meant to, to, to saturate our lives, to be read daily, um, you know, to, to, to cause a hungering and a thirsting for God. And you have to be in the Word of God. And so, yes, there are differences, and, and, and some differences might be significant. And we figure out those differences, once again, by going back to the original language, not by going back to a particular translation. Now, uh, concerning those original language that the Bible is written in, those manuscripts of Scripture, those originals, are called the autographs, okay? Um, Obvious meaning, you know, they're not copies, they're they're genuine autographs. They were hand-penned by Paul or by Peter. We do not have the autographs. We do not have the original, the first letter that, that Paul wrote you know, to the Philippians or Ephesians or whoever it might be. We don't have the original First and 2 Peter. What we do have, and I'm going to be focusing on the, the New Testament here for a while, what we do have is we have over 5,000 complete copies of the New Testament that have, have been written and that were recopied. We have an additional 13,000 manuscripts that have portions of the New Testament. And many of those 5,000, those 13,000, date back to the first century. So you've got, think of this, you've got um, the Apostle John, who died around A.D. 90, and some of the first copies that we have are like 10 years later, in a d one hundred that we have of these letters that they have been copied and copied over and they 've been handed and passed around and, and, and they have been been circulated um, it, it, compare this it 's kind of interesting you know some people say, well we, you know, we don 't know if the bible 's accurate or not. I mean we have so many of these copies, other things that we quote from um, you know the writings of Caesar you know Caesar lived. Uh, died in about 44 BC, 44 years before Christ. The earliest copy that we have of any of the words of Caesar were 900 years later. 900 years later, and we only have 10 copies, you know, but we don't question their authenticity. Plato and Aristotle, you know, they, they lived some 400 years before Christ, and yet... Their, their most recent writing that we have of copies is some 1,200 years after they died. And there's only seven copies of, of Plato and ten copies of Aristotle. But we never question whether or not you know, the, the authenticity of them. And now you have the Word of God. You know, 5,000 complete copies, 13,000 partial uh, co- copies. You know, exhaustive studies have been done on the, the some eighteen thousand Greek New Testaments that we have to ensure the accuracy, so that we know that what we have and what we are translating from is as close as we can get to the original autographs as as humanly possible. So there's a surety that we can stand. You know, and I, and I get this argument sometimes. When I'm talking to the unsaved per- people about you know the the accuracy of the word of God and whether we can believe in all of that. I mean, just look at how God has preserved it. I mean, just think of all the writings of all the times in history and how his word has been preserved. 18,000 copies, and the most we have of anything else that is written near that time is only 10 copies. You don't think that this was an important word you don't think that this is the truth that they went to great length to keep this word and to to write it down and to 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 pass it from church to church and individual to individual i mean it's the power of the word of god um we might ask the question and again we're getting a potpourri of things here you might ask the question well how would we get the name bible why do we call this the bible well it, it's kind of an interesting story um the early greek writings were done on a, a material called papyrus. You know, it was a material manufactured from reeds. These pages then were sewn together to form a book, and one book would basically be one letter, like the letter you know to the Corinthians or Second Corinthians would be one of the book. And in the Greek, it was it was called a biblios. Um, later on, when you compiled a whole bunch of those books together, it was called ta Biblia. And, you know, it was a compilation of the small books, and ultimately, you know, naturally then it, it just then became the Bible, you know, as, as all the books that we have here. Um, those manuscripts that we have, it's kind of interesting. Uh, they were written on mainly three materials. Um, I mentioned papyrus, which was manufactured from reeds. Uh, there's parchment, which was manufactured from animal skins. And then there was a material called astraka if I'm pronouncing it right. Basically, that was pottery or clay. Um, you know, kind of picture the scene here. This it, the the ostraca is kind of interesting because that was what the common man used to write on. And so, you know, here's a man getting ready to go to work, and their Christian family, and he pulls out a a, a thing of clay, and he smacks it all down, and he writes out, you know, he writes out there are three things that will endure faith hope and love but the greatest of these of love have a nice day honey and leaves his wife a note on it and then that's basically how we have a lot of that that you know we have post-its notes today but that's what they did and so a lot of these manuscripts that we have were written on clay pieces of clay uh, that have been architecturally found um the only problem is, you know, with that in the early letters is they didn't have the chapters and the verses like we have. So they couldn't say 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, you know, says this. Uh, you know, they had whole letters. That's how they were originally written. But it's so interesting on just those little bits of, of clay pottery where, where somebody, a verse struck to them. Or they may have written out a verse and they may have put it on the wall Like we would put a plaque or something like that. If you just take those clay potteries, you could construct the whole New Testament. I mean, that's how much even on the common man it was being written and that it was was being accepted and it was being uh, circulated. Now let's let's talk for a minute um, about the New Testament books themselves. You know, the Matthew and Philippians and James. Let's talk about those books. Um, Some of the books were written for a very wide audience. You know, when they were written, there was an expectation that a a large group was going to be reading it. Um, The Gospels, three of the Gospels are like that. We talked last week about Matthew, you know, primarily was written to the Jewish nation. Then you have the book of Mark, which was written to the Roman nation. Then you have the book of John, which was written to the Gentiles. All, you know, anyone who wasn't a Jew. So the expectation was the, the, the broad readership. Other books that you have were written to a specific person or a specific region. In Luke chapter 1, we'll put this up there. In Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 14, it says, "Inasmuch." As many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seems fitting for me, as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. So the book of Luke is an accurate account that Luke is writing down concerning the events concerning from Christ's birth to his death, to his ascension back in heaven. And it was written to an individual named Theophilus. Now, I know in some circles they be a, they, they take that word Theophilus and it, it means a general public or that. Uh, but there's not there's no definitiveness of this. A very understanding, it could have been written to one person and say, I want you to understand. This could have been Luke's witness to this individual that God inspired him to move to write concerning the events of Jesus Christ. Um, some of the books were written to a region, to a specific church. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, we'll put up there. It says, Paul and Timothy bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. So the original intended audience was the Christian church um, at at Philippi. They were the original readers. And, And then by the time you get to 2 Peter you already begin to see that the apostles, 2 Peter is one of the last books of the epistles that were written. You can see that already these letters that have been written out by the apostles that have been sent to individuals, that have been sent to regions, suddenly now they're being circulated um, amongst themselves. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. It says, "...in regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. As also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which we are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of Scripture to their own destruction. So they're, now they're referencing other, the apostles' writings, and they're starting to get circulation amongst um, the other church churches. Um, because the honest truth is the early church... Did not have a Bible like we have it, you know, in, in, in its finished form. You know, one church might only have the Old Testament, which was, you know, already kind of canonized and sealed by that time. They might have an Old Testament and then might, might only have two or three other books of the epistles and 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 maybe one of the gospels, you know, but very soon you can see the earliest forms of the Bible coming together. As suddenly Christians are traveling and they're carrying the word of God with them, the portion that they have, they're sharing it with others, it's being copied again. That's why we have so many copies um, of the New Testament. Um, Again, the Old Testament has already been canonized. You know, the Jews already knew what books were made up the Old Testament and they were accepted by Jesus Christ. Um, But it's it's, it's primarily the New Testament that we really want to look at to see how God... Has kept it together, Um, and there are many reasons that you would want to take the Bible and you would want to make sure that you, you know, canonize it and you make sure you have the accurate books of the Bible. Just like they had the Old Testament, let me give you about eight of them. Number one, the fact that the Old Testament had been collected, the thirty-nine books that we have of the Old Testament, would lead them to collect a New Testament. You know, a set of authoritative books, just like the Jews constantly referred to the Old Testament, that the church could refer to the New Testament. Second, since these books were immediately authoritative because they were written by the apostles or eyewitnesses to Christ, everybody wanted a copy of them. So it was a matter of of, it was important to put together to know that these ones were the authoritative books so that the ones that are being copied and being circulated, everybody wants a copy, so that could kind of put the seal of approval on them. Number three, the content of these books was about Jesus Christ, and every Christian wanted a copy because of their love for him. They wanted to have the teachings of Christ. I mean, just think about us. We don't even think about that. I mean, how many Bibles do we have in our house? How many different versions do we have in our house? And so it's very easy for us to pick it up and to to read about our Savior. But can you imagine being a Christian? And accepting Christ, and you maybe only having one book, and you want to learn more and more about your Savior, more and more about what it means to be a child of God, or, or heaven and your future. I mean, so there was a hunger, and so just naturally it gave itself to, to bringing these books together. Number four, as the apostles began to die, everybody wanted a copy of their teachings. Again, you know, by 90 A.D., John, the last apostle, dies, so they want to make sure that they're keeping their, their writings alive. Number five, the churches begin using them in public worship and reading them in their church services. In Colossians 4.16, it says this, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So there was that intent that in in their time of their worship, they were reading these letters, these truths about Jesus Christ. Number six, as the church began to grow, there also began to come a growth of false doctrine and controversy. And that motivated the church to make sure that they, they, they brought the apostles' writings together, the inspired word of God together, to combat this false doctrine and there, these divisions and this heresy that was beginning to come into the church. Okay, Number seven, the arrival of the apocryphal books motivated church leaders to establish collections of biblical material and reject non-biblical material. Um, These books that we have, particularly in the New Testament, it's not like these were the only religious writings that were happening at that time. There were other religious writings uh, that were out there. And with, with them having the religion in nature, they wanted to divide them out to what ones are really inspired by God and what are just kind of man's... Opinions on things that were happening. Number eight. Um, and this is interesting. Um, a great persecution of the church broke out in 303 A.D. under a, a leader called Dre Klesian. And one of the things that he did is he ordered all the sacred writings to be collected and to be destroyed. And that forced Christians to risk their lives to save the word of God. And 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 it's kind of an interesting thing. I mean, if 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 you you know put yourself in it that if you were ordered to get rid of all your religious writings, I mean, you know, what we would do to keep the word of God alive and to what great lengths we would go to risk our life for that, you don't do that for any book. You know, you don't do that for the honky tonky, wonky donkey that we have, you know, that we read our kids. You know, we risk our life for something that is true. And 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 so it just it you know just that persecution that broke out we we probably have ten thousand more copies of the New Testament if it wasn't for that persecution that broke out in the third century, Um, but as it is I mean look at the amount that we had because of the power of the word that was being written the power of the truth and how it was accepted as the early church the early church recognized the importance of having an accurate and complete form. Of God's revelation, and so, so if you kind of want to put a timeline of, of your Bible, let me, let me give it to you real quickly. Between A.D. seventy and and one seventy, the church is circulating many copies of Scripture. You know, very loosely, these things are being uh, um, circulated. From one seventy to three hundred three, the books were being circulated. Were gradually gathered into a collection. And they were separated, you know, from the rest of Christian literature. In other words, these these were from the apostles. These were the revelation of God. Okay, from 303 to 397, about a hundred years, the unity and completeness of Scripture was then being recognized. And and we're about we're, again, we're talking about the church recognizing that this is the Word of God. When God inspired it, it was automatically the Word of God. It didn't become the Word of God when they you know, put their seal of approval on it. But it took a while for all these books. I mean, we're, we're talking a huge region. Um, you know, transportation isn't what it was today. Communication isn't what it was today. So it's taking such a long time to compile all of the books that are out there that God has inspired. Um, and, and so that's kind of the, the, the how all of that came about to give us our Bible. And, and, and again, this brings us to a real good question. What was the measuring basis and used to know what was from God and what wasn't? How do we know that that these books are the Word of God? Well, it's, there's a word, and you've heard it before, the canon of Scripture. And that canon, that word, it's a Greek word. It means read. And a read back then was kind of like our yardstick. It was a measuring tool. And so when we call, talk about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about what is the measuring tool that was used to, to kind of, you know, saturate scripture or saturate any book to make sure we knew it was the revelation of God. You know, what is the standard? What is the criteria that we have here? Well, there are about six of them. They're, they're pretty, pretty basic. Um, you know, to be included in, in the canonizing of the New Testament, number one, it had to be prophetic, written by a prophet, or number two, it had to be authoritative. In other words, it claimed to be God's message. So it would say words like, thus saith the Lord, you know, would make a claim to being written by God. Number three, it needs to be authentic. In other words, it needs to be written by the person who claimed to be its author. And we're going to look at the Apocrypha books in just a second here. But um, some of the Apocrypha books, uh, a number of them, I think there's three that deal in the time of Daniel. Well, they weren't written until the first century and so obviously it wasn't from an eyewitness or somebody who who was there you know it needed to be authentic um number four it had to be life it had to have life transforming power i mean there is something about when you read the word of god that it it speaks to you you know it cuts to the heart it cuts to your soul number five it need it needed to be widely recognized as the word of god In other words, that the early Christian church preserved it and circulated it and, you know, that it was accepted as God's word. Number six, it was reliable. In other words, the contents were consistent with the rest of Scripture. In other words, you know, dates and places, they need to be accurate. Uh, You know, that there weren't inconsistencies in the book. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that we're going to talk about the Apocrypha books, and we'll do that just real quickly here. Um, most of you have heard that term, and if you've not studied it very much, it's just a term you know, you're know you kind of familiar with, but you don't really know that much about it. Well, in, in 1546, at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church voted into Scripture 14 additional books that they said needed to be included in our Bible. There were books like 1st and 2nd Estrada, excuse me, Bell the Dragon, Judith, Tobit, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, um, books like that. Um, Today, I believe that the Catholic Church is the only denomination that accepts them as being part of the Bible, and even amongst many Catholics, there's a lot of debate on whether or not they should should be included. Um, Let's talk about why we reject those. You know, why we hold so true to these and we don't accept the, these other writings. Well, first of all, the Apocrypha, they contained a lot of historical and geographical errors. Remember we said that there had, to be, there had to be a truth to that. And so when it's talking about a place or a date that something happens, it has to be accurate. Again, this is God that is, that is you know, inspiring it, breathing this into men. So there's going to be truth in it. So there, if there's contradictions, you know, um, we know they're not from God. Uh, secondly, um, most of the apocryphal books are Old Testament in nature. As a matter of fact, they, they claim to be written about Old Testament times. But those books weren't written in Hebrew. They're actually written in Greek. So they, at the very best, they were written, you know, in New Testament times and in the first century. So we know they weren't at the actual time of its happening. Um, third, no apocryphal book is quoted by Christ or any other New Testament writer. You know, the, the books make reference to each other, but none make reference to any of the Apocrypha books. Um, number four, no messianic prophecies or references to salvation are in these books. You know, they're, 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 there's not a godness to bottom. Um, you know, the, the, and these books, number six, they never claim to be scripture. Remember one of the things we said, they need to be prophetic in nature have prophecies that have come true, or they need to have that claim that they were the Word of God. And the Apocrypha books don't do any of that. They do not have pro- any prophecies in them, or they don't even claim themselves uh, to be the Word of God. Um, number six, the Apocrypha was not in the original Hebrew canon. In other words, you know these books that supposedly happened in Old Testament time, they weren't accepted by the Jews And they weren't accepted by Jesus Christ. They weren't quoted by any of them. Number seven, the Apocrypha implies doctrines that are contrary to Scripture. Um, And we're going to talk about them real quick here. say, well, why why did the Catholic Church want to accept the Apocrypha books, these 14 books? Well, remember we said it happened in the mid-15th century. What else was happening during the 15th century? And kind of tax your brains just a little bit here. Well, it was the time of the Reformation, wasn't it? you know, Martin Luther and, the, you know, theses and the challenging to, to Catholicism and, um, you know, kind of the, the, the birth of Protestantism. Well, the Catholic Church, in, in response to this, because they were having a lot of division, a lot of splits to kind of build unity, they announced, you know, the acceptance of these new books. Um, why were these books accepted? Well, these books teach some things that the Catholic Church wants to teach. Uh, three of them. One of them is Purgatory, and you've heard that term before. And and the Apocryphal books, some one of the books would teach concerning Purgatory, that if you were, let's say, well, for the Catholic Church, if you were a Catholic, but you weren't really faithful and you weren't real obedient, you wouldn't be. When you die, you wouldn't be sent to hell, but you wouldn't get to go to heaven as either you would go to a place they call purgatory where you would suffer for your sins until basically they were paid for and who who knows what that would be a hundred years ten thousand years but then ultimately once you had paid for your sins then you would be allowed into heaven you know clear contradiction with the rest of scripture they also teach something called the extreme unction and that is basically the the anointing for death where where when a person is about to die that they would call in for the priest, and there would be a special ceremony anointing that person to be able to go into heaven. And then probably, this is probably the, the one that wanted most, it's something called indulgences. And that's if I was a really, really bad sinner, that in this lifetime I could pay an amount of money to the church, and it would cover my sins. And, and take care of thy sins and I wouldn't spend as much time in purgatory and all of that. And that is one of the ways that the you know kind of the church, you know, collected money at those times. And so again, you can see the 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 accuracy of, of scripture. And we talked about this the last few weeks, how, you know, we got sixty-six books, we've got thirty-nine different authors, and you know, that's written over a fifteen hundred year period. There's a perfectness of it. They don't contradict it. And suddenly introducing these books that contradict uh, clear teachings and places and dates and all of that. Uh, that's why we don't accept the apocrypha books. Um, so the last thing we're going to do here, and and this is going to come in January, we're going to look at our Bible's makeup and, and understanding the flow of the Bible. Um, because I, I, I know, you know, maybe you just pick your Bible up and you want to have your devotions. And so you page through and oh, that looks good, and then you stop and you read, um, and 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 that's fine, for a point, but depending on the depth that you want to go with God and the depth that you want to go into the Word of God, that you should want to go, you need to understand the flow of this book. There's purpose, there's reason to it, and the more you understand it, the richer it's going to become to you. And we're going to talk about that, um, ne- uh, next time probably in January. But I want to leave you with this very simply that this book that you have here, this is a miracle. I mean, it is miraculously given to us from God. It has been miraculously preserved. There isn't anything close in our history to any single writing, to any single philosophy, any single understanding that even is a drop in the bucket compared to what God has done to preserve his word and to communicate to us who he is and how we can have a relationship with him. And so if you take nothing else away from here in this whole study on, on the Bible, um, understand that this is a miracle. And God has given it to you to be read. For you to take the time, whether you're going, you know, taking the time to go deeper into it, or you just, you know, picking up and you have a few moments and you want God to speak to you. It's a miracle that your creator wants to have a communication with you and with me. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the truth of your word. Man, the more and more I study it, Father, the, the more and more I'm awed at who you are and your love for us and your wonder and your truth and your understanding of your creation, you know, and your communicating of that truth to us and your desire and your passion to have a relationship with each and every one of us. And, Lord, I I ask that, you know, you would just give us a freshness as we read your word. You know, whether we've been saved for 50 years or, you know, 50 days, Lord, that, that we would not lose the wonder that we have to be able to pick up every day so freely and hear you speak to us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for your communication to us. In thy name we pray. Amen.